there is something between birth and death called life. And to live a lifestyle, which means you do only anything that will empower you rather than deplete you. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Edith Egger. One of my personal idols, Dr. Edith Egger, has lived a lifetime and then some. After surviving the Holocaust as a young teenager, Egger moved to the United States and for decades dealt with survivor's guilt, unable to speak openly about her trauma. But when she encountered Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, her life changed forever. She ended up developing a personal friendship with Frankl, and he encouraged her to pursue her calling, helping others find meaning in their own lives. So, without a high school education, Edith went on to complete her PhD in psychology at age 50. And at age 90, she was convinced to write her first book, The Choice, and soon after she wrote her second, The Gift. And even more impressive is that both books became bestsellers and thrust her into the spotlight. She's spoken with Oprah, Brene Brown, and many others about how she turned the tragedy of the Holocaust into a psychological outlook and life philosophy. Simply put, Dr. Edith Egger is a gift, and one that should not be missed. Just a note for listeners. In this episode, Egger speaks openly about her Holocaust experience. We started our conversation talking about Edith's idyllic childhood in Hungary. Her parents had given birth to her two older sisters. Edith, though, wasn't exactly what they expected. I am born into a very talented family. My sister Magda played the piano and my sister Clara played the Mendelssohn violin concerto when she was maybe six years old, a child prodigy. And then my parents decided it's time to have a son. And guess what happened? They got me, and I was the runt. I was uh, very shy, uh, very lonely. I developed my inner resources as a child, how to be alone and accept that and do the best with that. Because if you're not happy alone, you're never going to be happy with anyone else. Today, I would thank my mother that she told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks, because I did develop my brain. I did go to the school. I entered a very wonderful girls' school that I learned how to speak German and French. I studied Greek. I knew all the goddesses, and that impressed my husband (laughs) when I met him. Yeah. And I remember reading that you had a boyfriend. Can you tell us a little bit about Imre? I met this guy, you know, and we became soulmates. We would sneak into the theater when Jews were not allowed to show up. And we were also very much into going to Palestine. We were um, very serious about that. 
we were very strong Zionists. When I was 16, I got 16 red roses that I never ever forget. And he told me that he'll never forget my eyes and my hands. And believe me, in Auschwitz, I would go to everyone asking, tell me about my hands, tell me about my eyes. Because if I survive today, then tomorrow, 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 if I survive today, then tomorrow I'm going to see him and we're going to be together and we're going to go to Palestine. So in May of 1944, you and your family were loaded into cattle cars and sent to Auschwitz. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I never ever forget my mom was sitting alone, and so I joined her. She says, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen, honey. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind, and that really saved me, because that's exactly what happened. Everything was taken away from us, and I still had my sister Magda, and I still had my brain. At the end of the ride, you arrived to Auschwitz, and that was your first encounter with the angel of death, Dr. Mengele. Can you share a little bit about that moment? We had to stand in line, and everybody under 14 had to go to one place, everybody over 40 to another place. And I was with my mom and Dr. Mengele, I didn't know who he was, pointed my mother to go to the left and I followed my mom. And this is very interesting that the very man who murdered my parents is the very man who grabbed me and told me, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. And there I was with Magda, my sister, the other line, which meant life. And then I arrived in that place called Birkenau for women, and I have a couple. And a couple was someone who was ranked high to interview the new arrivals. She looked at me and she took my earrings and just pulled it down. I was bleeding and then I said, when will I see my mother? She pointed at the chimney fire was coming out. And I never forget when she said, she's burning there. You better talk about her in past tense. And my sister Magda hugged me and she said, the spirit never dies. We were completely shaven, and being a Hungarian woman, very taken with herself, she said, how do I look? And I had a choice then, as you have a choice now. 
whether you point out what the person still has or what that person lost. So instead of telling her the way she really looked, all her nakedness, I said to her, Magda, you have beautiful eyes. And I couldn't see it when you had your hair all over the place. And you know what? Even today, she just celebrated her 100th birthday. She tells me that she's gorgeous. I like the way she says gorgeous with a Hungarian accent. She is so darling. Dr. Eager, did you have any other encounters with the angel of death, Dr. Mengele? Yeah, Dr. Mengele came to the barracks and they just scooped me up and said, you entertain Dr. Mengele and threw me in front of him. And then he said, dance for me. And so I did my routine. And I, I did the blue Danube, and I was coming up and coming down. And I even did a high kick, and he gave me a piece of bread. And I was very yeah. hungry. I could have grabbed that bread and eaten it. Thank God. I looked up and I saw my sister and the girls and I climbed up and I shared the bread. And that was the best thing I did. When you go beyond your me, me, me and the I, I, I and your ego needs and you transcend that and you commit yourself to another person. And that piece of bread that you shared with your friends, I believe that that also saved your life later on. You did your homework. Thank you. When I was on the death march from Mauthausen to Gunskirchen, if you stopped, you were shot and put in a ditch. And I remember that the girls that I shared my bread with They came and carried me so I wouldn't die. Isn't that amazing? How the worst condition can bring out the best in us. In the darkest moments, how did you find the strength to move on, to continue? You're going to really wonder how I could turn hate to pity. I felt sorry for the guards, that they were brainwashed. They were wearing a uniform. They were telling me that the only way I will get out of here is a corpse. The guards who were truly the prisoners, not me. You can turn hatred to pity and feel sorry for people who hate and hate and still hating. You're still a prisoner if you do that. I want to be free, and so the free spirit is what I have discovered in the darkest yeah. places in hell. After the war, you got married, and you made plans to move to Israel, which is the second time that you made plans to move to Israel, but uh, the story changed in the last moment. We were supposed to meet our friends 
and a factory that my husband was going to open in Israel, and also all our belongings. We bought a cattle car like, you know, the one I was in, with furniture, with jewelry sewn into the dresses, and dresses for my daughter for the next five years. We were all ready, and it's time for us to go to the train station. And a wonderful friend of mine, a very strong Zionist, she told me if I have a chance not to come to Israel because they were in a desert living in tents. So I told my husband, you can go to Israel. I would never stop you. I'm staying here with our daughter. So he did go out to the train station and he heard his name and he came back. So that's the story about changing gears. I was on a ship for displaced people going to New York and ending up in America, not speaking a word of English, not having six dollars and... Here I am today. I was fortunate enough to be accepted at the University of Texas. See, I have a PhD now, but I never finished high school. I begged them, and they accepted me on probation, and they put me in a class called English as a Second Language. And I remember I learned the word essay. We had to learn how to write an essay. So, and then he said to me, it's like the old preacher. Tell him what you're going to say, say it, and then tell him what you said. So go home and write an essay. I can picture myself sitting down wondering, tell him what you're going to say, and say it, and then tell him what you said. And I studied to do and this and that and that. I ended up on a dean's list and I graduated cum laude. You see, this is what happened when you use one word, willing. When you're willing to be willing, are you revolving or are you evolving? Dr. Eager, did you ever visit Israel? Yes, I have. I think it's a wonderful gift that you can give to yourself to walk in that place where Jesus walked. And I think it's very important to go to Israel. I was there and I actually got together with a psychiatrist and we were wondering Was there ever any positive that we can think of to Auschwitz? And right away we say, no, there is no positive. And then we realized, yes, we didn't give up. We're here. We made it. And we can then start becoming a good parent to you. Because that's the only one you have for a lifetime is you. All other relationships are going to end. And dependency breeds depression. So you see what you're doing. You're giving people an opportunity to be born free 
free from the concentration camp that is in your own mind, that you created, and the keys in your pocket. It was very hard for you to speak about your Holocaust experience for many years, is that right? It was very, very, very difficult. I uh, got a letter from Washington to go back to Europe and speak. And I said that I don't think I can go back to Germany. I have emotional issues. And my late husband said, if you don't go back to Germany, then Hitler won the war. And that did it. And I ended up going back to Europe and then ultimately also going back to Auschwitz. And I remember reading that you were once invited to speak before a big crowd in Germany, and you stayed in the hotel where the head of the Nazi propaganda once stayed. I was actually sleeping, I was told, in Goering's bed. But when I came in the night before, an elderly German was at the desk, and he said to me in German, Hello, Mrs. Eager, you must be waiting for Dr. Eager. I didn't want to disappoint him that I am the Dr. Eager and, and waiting for a Mr. Eager. Uh, I did not want to disappoint him, and I said yes. Well, he heard me the following day, introduced as the keynote speaker. Today I can tell you that it's very good for you to revisit the places where you've been, especially now that you made it thus far and I go back to Germany, and I don't look for the Nazis, because I know they were kind, good people among the Nazis. Also, to realize that uh, we have a Hitler in every one of us. Our biggest enemy is ignorance. That's right. Did your sister Magda, by the way, come with you? Oh, no, she told me I'm an idiot. Oh, no, no, I begged her to come with me. I didn't want to go alone. But she said, you're going to be re-traumatized. You're a stupid idiot. And so that did it. I didn't ask her again. You decided to pursue a PhD and devote your career to therapy. What was the reason behind that? To me, all therapy is grief. We grieve over not what happened, but what didn't happen. And that reminds me of my granddaughter, Lindsay. And she asked me to buy her a dress so she can go to a dance. And so I am a big sucker. I buy her a beautiful, beautiful dress. And I came home and out of the blue, I began to cry. I didn't understand what am I crying about. And I came to the realization that I'm not crying because I bought Lindsay a beautiful dress so she can go to her dance, I cried because I never went to a dance. And that's what I do now to relive that experience and know that you must start with you. There is something between birth and death called life. And to live a lifestyle which means you do only anything that will empower you rather than deplete you. 
whatever situation your audience is now, not to say yes, but to say yes, and that I don't like it. It's not really convenient and it's temporary because our self-dialogue can change our life. Whether you want to be driven or you want to be the driver. So I clean up people's English a lot. Give me the but, I give you an end. A lot of yes is yes I am, yes I can, yes I will. One woman was in a marathon and she stopped in the middle of it and she thought she's not able to go further. And then she ran into my office, I did it, I did it, I did it. What you told me, yes I am, yes I can, yes I will. And I preach that almost every day because there is no freedom without responsibility. I remember also um, reading that there was a guy that was sent to you, I think by the judge for therapy and he made um, hateful comments. Can you share that story? Yes, yes, yes. He was 14 years old and the judge sent him to me and then he got up and he put his elbow on my table and said, I'm going to kill all the Jews. So now I'm going to tell you the difference between reacting or responding. If I would have reacted, I probably would have dragged him to the corner. I would step on him and I would say, you know, I saw my parents going to the gas chamber. How can you say that? But I didn't do that. I went to my God, the one that was my guide in Auschwitz. And I was told to look for the bigot in me. And I said, oh, no, 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 you got it wrong. I came to America penniless. I went to the bathroom in 1949, and one of them said colored. And I did join the NAACP, and I did march with Martin Luther King, and I did sing, We Shall Overcome. It didn't do me any good. Look for the bigot in you. And I realized that my job is to create an atmosphere, a safe That's what children need, to know that the world is a safe place. And I looked at this 14-year-old boy, and instead of reacting, I took a deep breath, and I said, tell me more. And he never knew who I was, had no idea, and the most obnoxious person is your best teacher. Amen. A few years ago, at the age of 90, you decided to write a book, The Choice, uh, which became a bestseller, and I highly recommend everyone to read it. What made you write that book after so many years? Well, so, so many years, people asked me to write a book, and I would automatically say, I have nothing to say. But Philip Zimbardo, who wrote the foreword in The Choice, said to me, you know, Edie, The people who survived and famous are all men. We need a female voice. And that's how the choice became the female voice of Viktor Frankl. And then people called me, the choice is okay, we need something more practical. 
So that's how the second book is called, The Gift, because if you read a chapter, after a chapter you sit down and do the homework, that you are not revolving, but evolving. I want to switch gears a little bit, ask you a couple of uh, quick questions that we ask all of our guests. What are you most optimistic about? I am optimistic about my faith. Many people tell me, you know, I believe, I believe, I believe, but I want to know what kind of life you lead. And I think kindness goes a long way with me. I had a boyfriend for six years. He was very kind. Very kind. You're talking about Imre? I'm talking about a man that I buried a month ago. And the way we met is my acupuncturist called me one day and said, do you want to go dancing? I said, what's the matter with you? Don't you know that I'm a dancer? And he says, well, this guy broke up with a girlfriend and looking for a dance partner. And that's how I met Jean, Eugene, from Nebraska, who grew up in a farm and became a very brilliant engineer. But I don't know much about engineering. I still don't. Hmm. But I know that he was asking me what I'm going to do six weeks from now on a Saturday afternoon because he's an engineer. (laughs) And when we went to dance, it was two to the right and two to the left and then turn around and ask me whether it's a rumba or a samba or a... But it didn't matter because he only knew two to the right and two to the left. And then turn around. Engineers, you know, think like engineers. I'm not an engineer. And so I just followed him. On a dance floor, you let the man do the leading and the woman is doing it backwards with a high heel. I'm assuming that for you, it's only on the dance floor. Only in the dance floor. So my last uh, quick question is, what is a piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? When I get up in the morning, how can I feel satisfied that night? So I, I, I climb that mountain every day. And then I sleep and I climb and I sleep and I climb. And that's my life. I will never stop climbing. As they say, the destination is the journey. That I'm not revolving. I'm still at 94, want to know what am I going to do when I grow up. I like to be childlike, (laughs) but not childish. Dr. Eager, thank you so much for being on our show today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, and you continue being a wonderful interviewer. Thank you for having a brilliant mind and a warmest heart. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Eli Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and Leitraot. See you next time. You got it. We're gonna dance together.